0: Welcome to Medication Talk, the official podcast of TRC Healthcare, pharmacist letter, prescriber insights, RX Advanced, and the most trusted clinical resources. On today's episode, we'll listen in as our expert panel discusses management of overweight and obesity, including the role of newer injectable medications, oral options, and lifestyle changes. Our guest today is Dr. Jennifer Clements from the University of South Carolina College of Pharmacy. You'll also hear practical advice from panelists on TRC's editorial advisory board, Dr. Stephen Carrick from the USC School of Medicine, Greenville, Dr. Andrea Darby-Stewart from the University of Arizona College of Medicine, Phoenix, and Dr. Craig Williams from the Oregon Health and Science University. This podcast is an extract from one of TRC's monthly live CE webinars. Each month, experts and frontline providers discuss and debate evidence-based practice recommendations. The full webinar originally aired on January 23, 2024.
1: And now...
2: The CE information.
0: This podcast offers continuing education credit for pharmacists, physicians, and nurses. Please log into your pharmacist letter or prescriber insights account and look for the title of this podcast in the list of available CE courses. For the purposes of disclosure, Dr. Clements reports relevant financial relationships as a Speakers Bureau participant with Eli Lilly and Novo Nordisk. The other speakers you'll hear have nothing to disclose all relevant financial relationships have been mitigated. Now, let's join TRC editor, Dr. Jeff Langford, and start our discussion.
3: And this topic, I think most of us are aware that it's really taken center stage in the last several months to a year for multiple reasons. We've seen the rate of obesity climb dramatically in the U.S. over the past few decades, often leading to this being labeled a public health crisis, And dubbed an obesity epidemic. But within that context, we now have these newer meds for weight loss that are highly effective compared to options that we previously had. And we also have data showing that one of these meds, semaglutide, reduces cardiovascular risk in patients with obesity. And that's a bit of a contrast to some of the cardiovascular concerns that we had with agents in the past. So all of those factors kind of taken together contribute to this topic, really being top of mind for us as clinicians and being squarely in the spotlight of lay press coverage for our patients as well. So Jennifer, I want to, with all of that in mind, I want to ask you if you can just kind of help us get started by reviewing the prevalence of obesity in the U.S., and we'll talk a bit about how that's classified to better understand it as well.
4: Sure. Overall in the United States, the prevalence of obesity is around 42%. And that is defined as a BMI or body mass index equal to and above 30. I think what is important to note is while we know the current prevalence, it is predicted that the prevalence of obesity will go up to 50% by the year 2030. So I think that that again, is a little bit more of a statistic that we should keep in mind as we move forward and really apply that to clinical practice and have the conversation about weight loss and weight management with individuals in practice.
3: You did mention that BMI greater than 30 was classified as obesity, and I wonder if we can talk a little bit more about that.
4: Once the BMI is equal to or above 30, that could be further classified in a different way as class one two or three. So class three would really be that severe obesity that you see at the bottom of a BMI equal to and above 40 kilograms per meter square. So again, this is a measurement of you know weight over height. And so it's often used in clinical practice because it's fairly easy to do when a person is being triaged into In clinical practice, basically. So, our EMRs or electronic health records can easily calculate that and Mm -hmm. plug it in and even bold it in some people's charts. So, again, it's often used in clinical practice, but I think now there's been discussion about is it the best way to measure obesity or weight.
3: What are some of the limitations of that? And what additional measures would you really consider practical to use in your clinic or site?
4: Yeah, so there's been a couple of things that I've used in clinical practice. I've done waist circumference before, and using that consistently among certain individuals. I've also used different devices in practice to measure maybe body fat percent. I think that's a great device as long as you use it consistently, because it could vary depending on, again, what type of device that you're using. Some people like to do the waist-to-hip ratio because that could also correlate with maybe a higher risk of certain complications and give you some more information.
3: Okay. Well, Stephen, I'd like to pull you into this and talk a little bit with the background that we've had about prevalence of obesity and kind of how to identify and classify that as you're engaging with patients and talking about obesity what are some of the health risks or health concerns that you may introduce into that conversation or what health risks are top of mind for you as you're evaluating those patients?
2: Yeah, and you mentioned earlier sort of uh, obesity is very much sort of an epidemic in our country right now. And why is that? It's, it's because that it, it can potentially lead to so many conditions of early morbidity and mortality that afflict our nation. And these range for things like heart disease, early cardiovascular disease, heart failure, stroke, diabetes, certain cancers, and like breast cancer, colorectal cancers, and liver disease, liver cancer, arthritis. I mean, it really comes to so many potential disease states that touch on so many processes in the body that just the amount of conditions and as I said, to morbidity and mortality can lead to is, is tremendous, and it really pre- represents sort of how this can affect the body in so many different ways across so many different organ systems.
1: I just add to that really briefly, Jeff. That yes, please. Those are great comments, and yeah, it really is kind of an overall quality of life factor mm. for so many people, but the, the things here, the one that often still catches people by surprise is the cancer link, and I think almost we become so good at treating heart disease that maybe it doesn't scare people as much as it did before statins and blood pressure control and 10 and 20 years ago, but the cancer link is real and a lot of patients aren't aware of that. And that still gets people's attention and can be definitely an extra motivator.
3: So Jennifer, with these health concerns in in our mind, let's, let's kind of flip that coin and talk about what are the health benefits of weight loss and how do you frame those benefits for patients in your discussions?
4: Yeah. Once I, you know, ask for permission to really discuss any sort of, weight issue, you know, I I want the individual to feel comfortable and know that they're not going to be judged for whatever they share with me, but I do think it's very important to engage them in that conversation so that they can share their thoughts about what they think the benefits are as well as what they see their goal being, because there are individuals that don't have realistic goals, and so we need to set them up for success. And that's where we often try to promote at least a minimum of a 5% weight loss so that we can improve those cardiometabolic parameters like blood pressure, cholesterol, and glucose. But really, we know, too, that when they lose weight, they're going to feel better, they will get around better, have improvement in their quality of life, and that could even lower their risk of other complications down the road. We're seeing, though, that the larger and sustained weight loss is really important, and I'm sure we'll talk about that here in a little bit, particularly when we get to certain medications. But, you know, 5% is the minimum. You can get more. So the greater the weight loss, the greater the benefit in terms of what they will gain from losing weight.
3: And as we think about how to do that, Andrea, I'd like to answer a question I think that is really top of mind, especially as we consider lots of drug therapy options, and and that is really, is lifestyle change foundational, and, and
5: what's your perspective on that, Andrea? I almost feel like this is a little bit of a trick question. So for me, the lifestyle changes that we want to ask our patients who have obesity Are the same lifestyle changes that I would like to see in all of my patients who don't have obesity but may just be trying to kind of achieve their best wellness so we know that increasing even a modest amount of exercise or movement is good for almost everybody I can't there are very few people I would say that that's not a good choice for we know that trying to Limit those highly concentrated over processed foods and focusing on things that are perhaps uh, have more nutrition available to them are going to be more healthy for everyone. And so I try and emphasize to people that what we really want to do is not make a dramatic change that is special and unique to them, but really something that we try and optimize for all of our patients. So exercise or movement of any type that feels comfortable, managing nutrition, managing sleep, managing your emotional health and wellness are all steps that all of our patients can take on that journey toward weight loss and are, in general, things that I hope that we're promoting for all of our patients.
1: I think that's the right answer, Andrea. Yes. But sometimes our patients' goals is to stop gaining weight. You know every six months you see them and they weigh 10 15 pounds more so I my mean, initial goal could be not gaining weight in the next year as opposed to how much you're going to lose and so yeah starting small is really important
2: yeah i agree with a lot of those those comments and when i counsel patients on lifestyle specifically i think it's always the decision between diet and exercise which one and where do we start and i can't speak to the power I, the, the power of weight loss is really through that calorie deficit i think and through those nutritional choices as alluded to picking foods, avoiding the processed food, avoiding those foods that are really calorie dense. You're thinking candy bars, small volume, high calories. Physical activity is fantastic, and I think it should be included in a lot of these counseling interventions we have with patients. It's excellent for cardiovascular health, reducing blood pressure. Weight loss, it's okay. I mean, we have to really get into that 300 minutes a week to really start seeing noticeable weight loss with physical activity alone, but you put physical activity and weight loss together, it really is sort of the wonder drug, I think, outside of these medicines we're going to talk about later in helping patients uh, achieve weight loss goals.
3: Well, Jennifer, let's turn to the next question and kind of pulling in the discussion about these medications for management of obesity, and I'd like to kind of define what is the role of these medications and, and when should we consider at least have them on the table as a consideration for management of overweight or obesity?
4: The first thing to keep in mind is that this is not to replace lifestyle modifications. This is in addition to lifestyle modifications, and that specifically is a reduction in caloric intake as well as increased physical activity. Where it falls is, you know, or where people could be candidates for these particular weight loss medications is when their BMI is, again, in that category of obesity, so equal to above 30, or they're overweight. And so that's the BMI equal to and above 27 with the presence of a weight-related comorbid condition, so dyslipidemia, hypertension, diabetes, sleep apnea. Most often, these medications have been studied in those with hypertension, dyslipidemia, as well as type 2 diabetes. But this is really how all of them are indicated, so in terms of their labeling, and that's because that's how they were studied in the clinical trials. And there was an old document back in 2008 that the FDA had come out and really supported the inclusion criteria for these particular medications, which really drove a lot of that but that's what they have in common across the board when we're looking at when to use them in practice.
3: Okay. And we do have a list here of medications, select agents that are approved for obesity and familiar choices starting with phentermine and then phentermine in combination with topiramate, orlistat, naltrexone and bupropion in combination and then several injectable agents, including loraglutide, semaglutide, and terzepatide. But what we've seen in in recent months is the spotlight really on semaglutide and terzepatide. And and Jennifer, tell us a little bit about why that is. Why why have these drugs really uh, garnered so much attention in recent months?
4: What's really great about the evidence behind them is you're seeing drugs get closer and closer to the results that are seen with bariatric surgery. So it's where we're talking about those larger and sustained weight loss goals, because the studies are reporting not just the 5%, but what is the percent or proportion of people losing 10% or more, 15% or more, and even in some cases 20% or more of their weight from baseline with those you know, new medications like trisepotide, for instance. So they're really kind of pushing the needle closer than what we've seen before with older medications or what we could say are established medications for weight management. And so they're getting closer and they're showing really good evidence. And I think that we're gonna see, you know, more come out because even with semaglutide, as you mentioned, in the beginning you know the buzz too is that we have cardiovascular evidence and that could lead to discussions with payers picking up finally these medications
3: okay that's a really nice summary and i like the emphasis that as you said they're kind of pushing the needle closer to that bariatric surgery realm and i do want to just go back briefly and touch on the numbers in our in our articles that we published on this we included the absolute weight loss and what we included in our article was that using terzepatite 15 milligrams per week led to an average weight loss of about 41 pounds and that was compared to lifestyle change alone but one-year treatment uh, comparison period. And semaglutide, the absolute weight loss seen in a similarly designed study was about 27 pounds more than lifestyle change alone over about a year. So, Craig, I wonder with that context, if you can help us kind of unpack what we've seen around CV out- outcome studies with semaglutide specifically in this patient population and what kind of data we might be looking toward uh, hearing about tirzepatide, perhaps in the future.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think like a lot of us be surprised if there was not benefit from trizepatide. But as you have nicely quoted in the article, the and really the landmark trial that put CV events kind of on everyone's schedule was just published last December. And yeah, this is the right quote of the endpoint, and that's over about three years of the trial. So to some people, that I don't know what that sounds like a lot or little, but to have one primary CV event for, you know, less than a number treat of a hundred in about three years, that's pretty good. And so, uh, yeah, as we've been saying that we're getting into some real cardiovascular benefits, I think there's questions around in a lot of our minds, put my pharmacologist hat on how much of that is tied to weight loss and how much might be other effects. So there's mm-hmm. a lot of things about these drugs. There's still a bit of a black box that we're having trouble kind of unpacking exactly what these benefits are from. There's no doubt weight loss contributes for the anti-inflammatory effects and other aspects we don't understand, but it it looks like it's not entirely just that. So you don't necessarily have to have the weight loss to have some CV benefit. there's a lot more sub analysis of that big trial to come, but but yeah, it's a broad effect across endpoints that at a rate that you might expect to see, you know, for statins or drugs we've used historically to lower CVD endpoints. So, but this really is kind of, fairly recent that it's kind of on our uh, radar to, to this magnitude.
3: Well, as we think about these medications and weight loss medications in general, what is a practical approach to choosing one of these medications for management of obesity?
4: I think there's probably various ways that we all look at it and yet some similarities. I mean, of course, we can say we're going to look at the person in front of us and they're you know, specific factors that they have, like their medical history, other drugs, et cetera. And we're going to consider each option based on how it works, the contraindications, adverse events. I I tend to always think about safety first, you know, because that's a concern, because if they have adverse events, you wonder, will they discontinue it? Will that cause us not to titrate the doses as we should, to maybe get to a point for more weight loss, because often it could be a dose-dependent manner where you get additional weight loss. But obviously, I think, too, you've got to engage the individual in the conversation and talk about the cost of these medications, because that's obviously one of the barriers in practice, is that we just don't have that great coverage, or there's going to be a high copay, and even as you try to, use certain copay cards and get the price reduced, it still could seem like a large amount of money for that individual, where to someone else it may not seem that way. But I do think you should look at it as far as safety, tolerability, the simplicity. Each of these drugs is different in how they're dosed and their titration, some are complicated and some are a little bit easier. And I think that's important to consider when you look at a drug and consider it for the person.
3: Okay, well in our article after kind of offering guidance around tailoring the selection on weight loss goals and comorbidity, some of the points that we just discussed, we kind of came to a bottom line recommendation of, of considering terzepatide if it was practical for patients perhaps with severe obesity since it may lead to more weight loss or considering semaglutide for patients with cardiovascular disease based on CB benefit. Well, let's move to kind of the next area of consideration. In our article, we note that despite a lot of these positive points that we've discussed, it's not all smooth sailing with these medications. And there are important considerations, both in terms of safety as well as routine adverse effects, perhaps, and and access as well. And I'd like to unpack that a little bit. And Stephen, I'm going to start with you to just kind of ask what are some of the adverse effects that you consider common with these newer injectable agents, and how do you approach those conversations with your patients?
2: Yeah, most common is going to be those GI side effects that are related to these medicines, namely the nausea um, they experience with initiation and dose titrations and The way I usually manage those with patients is one, we start low, start low and slow, start the lowest dose. Typically for these, I usually say and try it for four weeks before we consider a dose titration. And the aim with that is just to help them experience, manage and and overcome some of these side effects. And even counseling them too, that maybe this nausea is related to some of that delayed gastric emptying and early satiety, that try eating smaller meals, maybe more frequent meals that may help reduce some of those symptoms too. The bigger uh, long-term side effects that we worry about, you know, there's some data emerging about more biliary tree issues, namely things like choicestitis, biliary colic, potentially even Gallbladder cancers that's seen in sort of long-term stuff. Again, kind of rare, but still something I bring to patients' attention, especially those patients that may sort of meet those age and demographics. We think sort of middle-aged women, maybe having a higher risk for biliary disease. Pancreatitis being one, always counseling patients on, so that intractable nausea, vomiting, pain. Although a very rare side effect, I've seen maybe once or twice, maybe a patient that may have had pancreatitis triggered by a GLP-1
3: agonist. Okay. I'd like to ask Jennifer to interject here, if I could, around managing those GI effects. We're seeing an audience question come in that I imagine is pretty common in practice, and that's if it's appropriate to use medications to relieve nausea. And wondering what you think about that, Jennifer, and, and if you ever give symptomatic meds for on a kind of PRN basis to help mitigate some of these effects.
4: My approach is really we got to do some quick education first. So, <laughs> There's gonna be education when you start the medication to make them aware and the reason why you're starting low and you titrate, we can't just bump you up to the highest dose um, because then you won't take it. And we gotta provide that education on what to expect when they get the first prescription and then definitely at the titration. But I do think you can start without having to pile on other meds or think about something empirically Just do something very quick. Ask them about their portion sizes. You know, and this is probably after they've been on it for a month or longer. What are your portion sizes? So start there. Then ask, what types of foods are you eating? Meaning, are you eating a lot of fatty foods, greasy foods, spicy foods? Because that could contribute to nausea. Then ask them what they drink and encourage them to try to drink plain water, etc. And so I think trying that first, really focusing on a quick education, you could create even a quick handout to give to them as a reminder when they leave the clinic. And that way, you allow them to try that before then adding on something that may be PRN to help alleviate those adverse events, especially based on how frequently they may be occurring. But i Really would encourage that approach rather than just adding on more medication just because then I feel like we get into maybe a spiral or some polypharmacy there because we know this could happen and we know when it could happen with the titration of the drug. So it's very important to maybe try that lifestyle first.
3: Okay, I like that, and I appreciate that we heard a nice perspective of different, different but complementary ideas on how we can educate our patients about incorporating the appropriate lifestyle measures to start with. So I think that's very helpful. There's
1: a lot of great comments, Jeff. That I mean, portion controls—something you should discuss with everyone up front. So it's just making sure patients know what might be coming. And then, yeah, lowest, slowest dose and portion control. And, and yeah, we, that gets a lot of patients through the first few weeks successfully.
3: Okay. Thank you, Craig. And, and while I have you on talking about some of these different considerations, I do want to touch a bit on drug interactions. Another question that, that we've been asked is specifically this potential interaction between, between terzepatide and oral contraceptives. And I'd be interested in your thoughts on how you manage this interaction and what you might recommend on this point
1: yeah you have to be aware of it and that's we just go with the labeling so because these drugs affect gastric clearance the recommendation is if you're using oral contraceptive uh, add a barrier method for the first four weeks after starting and after a dose titration doesn't affect other methods obviously so if anyone's using you know norplan injection type or iud so alternative Options to be considered, but, yeah, with the uh, four weeks of uh, alternative contraception around initiation and dose titration is a good idea and is what's in the package insert. I think this is a good
3: point, Andrea, to turn back to an, a very important underlying point, and we, we've alluded to it so far, but I do want to talk a little bit about cost and access of these medications. And average cost for these agents without payer coverage is around $1,200 per month. And I'm wondering, Andrea, how you navigate that in practice. How does that impact access, and and how do you work through that?
5: Yeah, you know, honestly, it's um, been quite a challenge, and I've noticed a large difference at the beginning of the year. Many of our payers have specifically noted that they are not going to be covering Mm -hmm. the cost of these medications as weight loss medications. So if you happen to have diabetes, you can be treated with these medications and have the benefit of weight loss. But if you don't, many of my patients have found themselves basically unable to fill the medication and you know no matter how many coupons you get and what the lower cost is that lower cost may be too much for many of our patients because of their strained financial circumstances i happen to have a work with a lovely ambulatory clinical pharmacist and she does her best to try and help my patients out with these medications But it's been a little disheartening for some of my patients to have to stop these in this calendar year. I think the other thing to talk with patients about as we initiate these is the the conversation about this being a long-term medication. And the fact that for as long as they're capable and willing to, this is a financial commitment to that ongoing wellness and weight loss journey and I think sometimes that's hard for people because we have a culture that is so very much about yo-yo dieting and take this quick fix and and that's how many of our other weight loss management options have been for them and so really thinking about what this means long term for them and their and their their health both their financial health as well as their overall physical and mental wellness
3: okay And Jennifer, I want to, Andrea gave us a really nice introduction to the idea that these meds to be considered for long-term use. And I wonder if you can unpack just briefly some of the data that we have about what happens when we stop these medications in terms of the impact on efficacy.
4: Sure, this is a common question that comes up, particularly as what was mentioned about using it long-term. So really, if you looked at any of the drugs that we showed earlier that are indicated for weight loss, when you stop the medication, the individual will gain weight back, and they may go back to where they were at baseline or slightly below that. We know that there are some individuals in practice that tend to gain weight above where they were before they started the medication. So again, each individual is different but the trend is, if you stop it, they will gain weight back. And so, those studies have showed that, you know, once they continue on, maybe from the first year with the drug, they then re-randomize them. And so, whether they got semaglutide again for additional time or placebo, switching them and not giving them drug just leads to weight gain.
3: Thank you for that, Jennifer. In our article, and I want to touch just very quickly on this, we did say that while these newer agents are in the spotlight, that often oral medications may And I want to just quickly look at some specific examples of efficacy with those oral agents. So if we kind of rank them from top down, we could see that fentramine topiramate compared to placebo average weight loss with that combination product was around 19 pounds. But with naltrexone, bupropion, fentramine, or Orlistat, we dropped below the 10-pound average weight loss versus placebo in those studies, often running for about a year. So efficacy does decrease, but we may need to consider them in some cases. And I wonder, Jennifer, if, if you might be able to just talk about specific indications when we might consider one of these oral agents preferentially, if there are any kind of disease states or patient considerations where we might look to one of these perhaps as a second choice if one of these newer injectables is not an option.
4: Sure. I'll just probably hit on maybe one thing per drug because I could okay. go on about each one. But <laughs> yep. I, Yeah. For instance, as mentioned on here, you know, If you wanna use Fentyramine plus Topiramate, you know, maybe they do have a history of migraines, but also both of those medications come as generic by themselves. So we know that that could lower the cost rather than using the brand name product. Again, because they're both generic and that could lower the cost. But there's definitely some other considerations If someone has depression, maybe you use the bupropion plus naltrexone, but you do need to watch out for the contraindications because it is a long list with that particular medication. With some of the other ones, you know, while you asked about oral products, you know, often phenteramine by itself is only short term. So maybe that's a way to just kind of kickstart someone's weight loss journey. And then they can further work on lifestyle modifications or go to another drug, but it's only for 12 weeks. But again, you have to look at cardiovascular, what's their blood pressure, what's their heart rate. Oralistat, it's so many times a day, it's often very hard, and with its adverse event or safety profile, people often discontinue it
3: that's really a, a great summary. And as we move toward the, to closing things out, Jennifer, any, any tip that you really focus on sharing with learners and trainees? I know that's part of, of your role as well.
4: Yeah, I would say that my clinical pearl would be empower, educate, and advocate. So we want to empower those living with a higher body weight to take you know, the appropriate steps, even if they're small steps, that they can be successful long term. I think educating them about obesity, the complications, the options that are available, etc., but then advocating for change because, as we discussed, there's new evidence coming out that I hope in two years at least, we do see the change and we're able to get these options a little bit easier for the individuals that really can benefit because we've seen some limitations or barriers in clinical practice.
0: We hope you enjoyed and gained practical insights from listening into this discussion. Now that you've listened, pharmacists, physicians, and nurses can receive CE credit. Just log in to your Pharmacist Letter or Prescriber Insights account and look for the title of this podcast in the list of available CE courses. You'll also be able to access and print out additional materials on this topic, like charts and other quick reference tools, from the Pharmacist Letter and Prescriber Insights websites. If you're not yet a Pharmacist Letter or Prescriber Insights subscriber, find out more about our product offerings at trchealthcare.com. Be sure to follow or subscribe, rate, and review this show in your favorite podcast app. It helps spread the word about our show and is a great way for you to let us know how we're doing. You can also reach out to provide feedback or make suggestions by emailing us at contactus at com. Thanks for listening to Medication Talk.